S-T-S. Welcome to another episode of Sounds and Style. I'm Lynette Nylander and this week's guest is international hairstylist Jawara. Jawara grew up around reggae and dancehall royalty and we'll get into those details in the podcast. He really is one of my favourite people in fashion. He believes in the transformative power of beauty and has an ability to make hair pierce through the final image. You will know his incredible work through the styling of the likes of Beyonce, Solange, Rihanna and many, many others. And not only does he have the power of making you look good, being around him really makes you feel good. We discuss his formative years growing up between New York and Jamaica in the 90s and early 2000s and how the music of Sister Nancy, Mary J. Blige and Diana Ross inspire his important work in black hair today. Welcome to Sounds and Style. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Jawara is someone I respect and admire very much. He is a hairstylist extraordinaire and artiste. I think Jawara has really altered the landscape and boundaries of hair, particularly black hair, that he's changed the image of beauty with every photo he's a part of. It's been really affirming for me and my spirit. So I'm really, really honoured that he'd agree to be a part of the podcast. I start every podcast with a quote that the person has said. And so I found this quote that you said, and I think it really sets us up for the intentionality of the podcast today. So you said, it is my intention to use this platform to curate a story journey of triumph through the power of our follicles. I was taught at a young age that hair is strength by my mother who hasn't cut her hair in 43 years. I believe that the best way to convey this truth is through beauty, which I think is so beautifully written, by the way, or said, paint the picture of you, young Jawara and hair and what you were learning and seeing. Young Jawara, the earliest images I have of myself is, uh, first, the earliest image I have is being backstage at uh, shows. I come from a family of reggae artists. That was like the first thing that I can remember where um, I just remember being like a baby and seeing all of these women and men getting dressed and going on stage and performing. And um, because my mom is a reggae singer, Mm -hmm. Um, my aunts, uncles, they're all reggae singers, reggae legends. And that's the first thing that I remember about my life in especially living in Jamaica and, and seeing all the music and seeing all of the culture and energy that was around. Um, And then it went into watching them get dressed and do hair and do, you know, get their clothes made a certain way and tailors and stuff. So I've always like was enamored by this idea of adorning yourself. And then after that, I remember I had to be about four or five years old. I was living in Jamaica because at the time my mom was traveling a lot with my dad. Um, They were traveling all over the world, but they were coming back to Jamaica, of course, to kind of live with us. But we were between New York and it's a long story. Anyway, (laughs) we were between New York and Jamaica. And I just remember um, going to the salon with my aunts that lived in Jamaica and one of my aunts working in one and then eventually having her own. And I just remembered hearing loud dancehall music, reggae music in the salons with loads of women talking and laughing and joking and dancing and just doing hair as a sense of community in a sense, not mm-hmm. just to to the service of getting your hair done, but it was like a community, it was a community ecosystem. Um, those are the earliest memories I remember. And this is like 
late 80s, early 90s. So this is like the height of the dancehall era where there's like so many different artists coming out of Jamaica with different styles and the hair was elaborate and the clothing was amazing and the, the dancing and the the food and just, it was just a lot going on, <laughs> mm. which I'm sure that the world got to later saw when dancehall broke um, worldwide. But I remember that being my first images and, and just hair being a really pinnacle part of that such an expression of what was going on in Jamaica at the time. When I think about my life, hair is woven through, like the, the fascination of hair is woven through so many different memories and it's insane. Yes, the fabric is really the fabric of your life. And when you came over to New York, where did your family land particularly? I was born in Flatbush, which is Jamaica in New York. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, by the way, guys. Flatbush is a is a highly concentrated Jamaican area. You get the best food, music. Yeah. It, I mean, it literally is mini Jamaica. It, that's, yeah. So I was born in Flatbush, moved to Kingston. When I came back to New York, I had a little accent and I would go to school and kids would like, you know, be like, Jamaican. And I'm like, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> it was a bit weird. <laughs> Like, you know, the 90s, the kids were like saying certain things when you came from Jamaica and it was like this whole thing. And, you know, what they used to call us. <laughs> and I think one of the things that kind of made me find myself is attaching myself to hair when I got back to New York. And the hair culture yeah. in New York was also insane because it was a melting pot of what was happening in the Caribbean, what was happening in hip hop, in um, American culture, what was happening in you know, all different cultures in one space. So that was a whole other life learning journey for me to kind of encompass all that was happening in New York. Yeah. And you, we asked you to send across some musical sounds, movements, songs in particular that really were formative to your sound and style. And the first one that you picked was a memory. It's literally called Memories. It's Beanie Man's Memories from Reggae Gold in 1995. I mean, yes. This song, I, think I said to Connor, my producer, this just takes me back to any time I've ever heard at a party, which is several, many, many yeah. times. Yes. It just makes you feel happy and warm and it takes you back. It literally makes you think of your memories. When I was a kid, I took dancing very seriously mm. in my whole we took dancing very seriously. It was like a huge thing. And I think this was one of my favorite songs to kind of move and dance to because it just brought out the all the all the dances that was out at the time and the and just the feelings. It just makes you feel good in that sense. It makes me feel good at least every time I hear it. You know, sometimes before I do a show, I play it to kind of bring my spirits up. And it kind do of you? just it, it, Yeah. Like when you yeah. play a show? Yeah, like when I'm on my way to the show, like a big show, I'd play it in one of my songs to play before I go on the show because it kind of gives me that. There's something in it that gives me like a little Jamaican confidence too, where it's just like, you know, this idea of like nobody can't, like this just undeniable confidence of like I'm the shit and nobody cannot do what I do. And it's like there's ways in that culture when we hear certain songs, you just feel like you're the baddest thing in the world in the sense of like, nobody can fuck with you. Yeah. So one of the, those are one of the songs that I play in that moment. Oh, well, I was describing you earlier and I was thinking about, you know, who you are and what makes you special. And I said, he he's really someone who carries himself truly and authentically everywhere he is. He, you've ascended to a very uh, exclusive fashion space, but you're still that guy from, it yeah. feels to me, you're still that guy yeah. from Jamaica. You still hang out with, 
you know, the people you came up with, you're very much about that. That's your style. One of the things that I guess, and I think this comes from like, I guess the way I was raised, which is understanding like there's a difference in, in, in real authentic love and affection and relationships. And I think that's what I gravitate towards. And I feel like sometimes um, in the industry that we work in, you know, there is a lot of love, but there's also a lot of fallacies and um, Mm -hmm. things that I don't necessarily connect to outside of just the way things look. So I try to keep my nucleus and I try to keep my energy very authentic, if that makes any sense. And I think the authenticity of people who I've recently met and people that have been in my life forever, I just try those energies and keep those close to me. And also, I'm one of those people that loves my culture, lives from my culture, leans into my culture. And a lot of my work, a lot of my work has my culture in it. I can't be too far from it. That makes any sense. Yeah. But it's just, it's, it's with that, it's really interesting, even though you carry your culture with, with you, how far you've been able to travel with it. You know, I think about all of the covers you've done. I think about the shows and they emulate all of this different, such, you know, you could be, you could be King and Altazara show and it's giving uptown lady (laughs) realness, you know, you've, you've done multiple Vogue covers, you've done your own personal projects and work, but you're, I think the key of, of someone who works in the beauty space, who can kind of ascend and tell their own story is that you always put your own kind of stink on it. It's not very often I can look at a photograph and know who hair and makeup is. And I think you're one of the few kind of working beauty architects, I always call them, whose work really shines yeah. through in a photograph. Um, Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate that. I appreciate that you can and pick that up. I feel like, you know, that's something that I, I hold very dear to. I want to hear about your teenage years. My teenage years, <laughs> I like to tell people that I didn't live a typical teenage life. Um, when I was a teenager, I was so enamored in this culture of, this was back when I was in New York. Now. Mm. There was this pressure to come to school looking a certain way. And I don't mean looking like nice and cute and things that you could afford. When I was in high school, all I wore was Versace jeans and Moschino and I Love did it. not and I don't understand where why we were all dressed like that and why were we 14 and 15 years old going to school worried more about what the next collection is before we thought about school it was I don't even know how I afforded all that shit to be that's honest. what I was just about to say how was this happening but I also went to school with a lot of people that was doing a lot of things um, <laughs> a lot of things <laughs> so I saw like a very fast life at that point in my life and that's not kind of what I came from so it was very interesting to me like why I was around that and why you know when I look at some high school pictures that I'm looking at like full head to toe like I remember t-shirts being like a hundred a hundred and twenty four dollars you might get a hundred twenty four dollars from at 14 years right. old to buy a t-shirt it was insane yeah. it was insane it but was the insane. brands were we used to wear Versace we used to wear Moschino we used to wear Jordans on our feet we used to wear Air Max 95, I never forget it. We used to wear TNs. We wore iceberg. It was so much, it was your tribe identifier, right? It was who, yeah. who it was how you presented yourself to the world. And at that age, those teenage years, it meant everything. 
And it meant everything. Was like, there, was all, there was almost an obsession about it to the point where, you know, I think a lot of my counterparts, I would want to say maybe from 14 to 17, cared more about the way they looked than anything else. And I just remember my friends and I being very caught up in it. And, you know, another part of my life outside of the fashion was hair. Mm. And I think I used the fact that I knew how to do hair and do it well to my advantage. So it it, it, it kind of lent itself to my popularity and kind of helped me with my confidence in the sense of like, you know, oh, you know, along with those clothes, we changed hair all the time. It was like, you know, you, you got your hair done on a Sunday before school, probably by me. Yeah. <laughs> by the next day, you were doing a whole other style. And it's not we're not talking about like taking your hair down and that's it. I'm talking about like full head weaves, sewn ins, wig caps. I used to make wigs. I would be changing all my friends' hair every week. It was it was a lot. Yeah, you know how okay. we did it. Selection two is Sister uh-huh. Carol, Liberation for Africa from 1983. Why did you choose this song and how does it influence your sound and style? Number one, I chose this song because it's performed by my mom, who is a really big of my life well hold on, sec- hold on hold on hold on hold on hold on we're just gonna casually <laughs> drop in i was gonna get to it but when jawara says he's part of a jamaican dancehall and reggae legacy and history he really is his mother is sister carol and his aunt is sister nancy so we we're, we're dealing with you know creme de la creme this is this is coming from the horse's mouth here so go ahead now you can speak on it <laughs> One of the reasons why, another reason why I love this song, performed by my mom, which is a huge inspiration. Yeah. The second reason why I love this song is because she was pregnant with me while she recorded it. What? Yeah, she was nine months pregnant with me when she, no, eight or seven months pregnant when she recorded this. The third reason why I love it is because the progressiveness of what was going on in the Jamaican Rastafarian community, how they were very concerned about as an extension of themselves. And and to this day, I'm like, wow, they were like on some, I say some next shit with yeah. the fact that it was so pro-Black in the sense of what was happening with oppression and, mm-hmm. and, and countries at that time. But then also another reason why I love it because she's kind of freestyling on that song. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to it, it's like, she's literally just saying what's on her mind and I think for me, artists that can do that without like censoring themselves or like, you know, um, <laughs> she she goes from talking about Africa to like, she, is she's so stressed out. She wants to bun a spliff. And it's like, it's like, it's, 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 it's such a, it's such a, it's such a rawness in it. And, and um, to capture the beat and the sounds of like what was happening in Jamaica and in New York and the reggae scene at that time, it, it's like, it's. It's one of the things that I think really shaped my life. Actually, it shaped my life because she was pregnant with me while she's singing. Literally it literally so. shaped your life. You were, <laughs> but yeah, but you yeah. were but an amoeba. <laughs> you were, you were, yeah. but, you were but a fetus when you know she made the song. How incredible! I never knew yeah. that. Um, I only knew about Sister Nancy, which I mean, this is someone who arguably. You know, even if you don't know that much about Sister Nancy, by the way, you should, because she's a very important woman in music. But everyone 
has heard Bam Bam. That is a song that is part of, I don't know, at this point it's part of music lexicon. That, 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 and how does that make you feel that you had these two women? It was like a whole ecosystem. So outside of mom and my aunt, I had my godfather and my godmother and like all these people around, like, you know, um, one of my mom's closest friends is Judy Mott, which is Bob Mott, one of the high trees from Bob Marley. And then like Barrington Levy is was supposed to be my godfather at one point, and especially someone else. It's like so it's like I was I grew up in this 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 ecosystem, which of course the nucleus was my mom for me, but there was also so many reggae artists. Like I'm around reggae, I have pictures of me as a child, with people just holding me in their hands, like famous reggae artists holding me in their hands. And I'm like, when was this? Um just being around that nucleus of love and progressiveness and just artist, artistry, I think, really had such an impact on me to the pack, to the pack, to the fact where I feel like it's definitely shaped the way I view the world and what I fight for and what I, how much I lend myself to my art for sure, hundred um, percent. And these are like really powerful people, specifically my mom and my aunt. They're like powerful women that yeah. just had such strong voice in what they did um of course and my other aunts and um heard their friends marcia griffiths and and barris hammond and all these people that my mom would be around so it's like you know they i just i almost felt invisible in the fact that um whatever i do is going to be amazing let's look at all the greatest i'm around yes and your work arguably when you look at your work it feels like a love letter i wrote a love letter to black women. And maybe I should open that up, but to black people. People for sure, but I would definitely say a big part of my purpose is to have the black woman feel appreciated because there's no amount of, there's nothing that describes what the black women in my life have done for me mm. and how they've empowered me to be the man that I am. And um, I, like to dedicate a lot of my work to them. Let's talk about then how you got into like doing, because editorial hair is very specific. A lot of people, there's a lot of hairstylists, but to, to kind of enter into this particular world that you find yourself a part in, not everybody does that. And it's, it's kind of a closed world. Not everybody understands it. And it really operates at that level of fashion that mystifies a lot of people. Like, what is it? What's going on? What are they selling? How do they do these shoots? Where do they end up? Like, I have family yeah. members who are still like, and what? And what does this magazine do? And how does it sell? And I'm sure you have that too, because, you know, you largely come from a world where people aren't involved in the, you know, the fashion world. How did you make that transition? While I was in school at FIT, I wanted to move away from hair at one point and then I was about to graduate and then I started looking at the different careers in fashion that I kind of identify with, which I was kind of going to school for. I realized that, wow, there's nothing in it that has the beauty part that I'm in love with, the hair part that I'm in love with. So then I started researching hairstylists that work in fashion and how they lend themselves to their careers and how huge the impact is it's not just going to set to do hair. You can, you can be a consultant. You can be an image maker. So I started going to the Invader Cosmetology at the same time. So at one point, I was going to FIT and the Invader Cosmetology to get my cosmetology license in New York. And um, 
after that, I started assisting in salons in Harlem, but I would also go on these websites, these fashion creative agency websites like yeah. Art and Comp and, and, and Art Partner. And I think at the time it was Streeters and like I would look at all these artists that they represent. And when you open Vogue and you go into the gutter of it and it says hair by or, you know, like you have to like open the gutter of it to see who you have to really crank open the creek because they put it right in the right in the crack where the where the where the magazine's printed yeah a lot of people that was around they would just look at the magazine and say oh that's cool that's cool i was obsessive about these magazines and like these fashion images and i would open the gutter like rip it open to kind of see who did the hair and people were like why you even care who did the hair like i never even thought about that and i would know these i would hear these names like uh, orlando pita guido palau Sam McKnight and I would be like I want to assist for these people I want to assist for these people it took me about a year and a half two years before I got an answer back from any of them because I'm this young kid I have no portfolio they put me on a show a Mark Jacobs show in New York I'm so astonished by like how much people we have to do and the time frame and the things that they're doing and the time frame that they're taking to get to where they go to the finished product of the hairstyles in the world of like the black hair salon culture, these things are done so fast, yeah. so easy. It's a bit of a process when you are working with highly textured hair. So by the time I started working in the editorial world, I realized that what the education and the sophistication of how I learned how to do hair at first was so complex. Even while I was in hair school and I'm learning about the Japanese blowouts and all this stuff, I'm like, oh, okay, this is all cool. But like, I think I I always feel like the first school of hair that I learned was so much more complex than I knew at the time when I was learning. And I felt like I would be on teams and I would see people, seven people doing one cornrow, things that was so innately easy to me. I felt like I learned that, wow, in this world, there's so much processes to get there. What if I mixed this world that I came from with this world that I'm now working in. And yeah. I think that's where style came about. And you made that entirely your, your USP. And I think not only did you make it your, your unique selling point, the world finally was at a point, particularly in the fashion space, where it was kind of catching up with culture. And there yeah. was a whole new wave of creatives and then a new way of looking at the universe that the world finally wanted to see, which was, yeah. and, and I think arguably the work that you do with Tyler Mitchell or Ibrahim Kamara or Carlos Nazario and all of, and, and Nadine Ijewere and all of the amazing image makers that are really putting black beauty at the forefront and putting it into a high fashion ecosystem all of the worlds kind of converged at a really great point that made yeah. black beauty that I guess you and I in, innately know because of our identity. It it made it fashionable. I don't I don't want right. I don't almost don't want to say the word fashionable because it made it it makes it seem like it's like a commodity, but it it, it was appreciated fully for the yeah. first time. But outside of it being appreciated, it was done. It was being done by. A, people for the first time who actually lived it it's a different way of shooting these things that i know how it went and i'm I'm like making it i'm putting it into the work with a certain sentiment as opposed to just like let's replicate this era of hair and that's it you know no but why 
why did these women wear this? What was the what was the what was going on? What was the idea? What was the what was the feel that these people were going through when this was happening? Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do you now putting into this and make it feel nostalgic, but not necessarily like a, a ripoff of the night? You know what I mean? So yeah. it's all those things that kind of added to it, like what you said. It's, it's it's it was it felt it felt great to see all that happening at all at once. You've been yeah. so lucky. You have you have worked with such true arbiters of style. You know, so many celebrities. Um, one particular that comes to mind that I have to ask you about, I have to, is you recently did the hair for Diana Ross for Saint Laurent campaign. This this was this was everything to me. I am obsessed with the seventies. Those women to me, that is my benchmark of true fashion style, sound and style. You know, Shaka Khan, uh, Donna Summer. Before I even go there, I made a list when I was assisting, back mm-hmm. when I was assisting, finishing uh, college and hair school at the same time. And on that list, the first person on that list was Diana Ross. Wow. So this had to be, I want to say 2007, eight when I made this list. That for me was a bucket list. It was insanely amazing. And the fact that she's energetic and upbeat and happy. And so it's just, she had me laughing the whole day. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I think one of the most rewarding days in my career, I must say. Selection three, Mary J. Blige, My Life, off of her, oh. off of My Life 1994, the album. Talk to mm-hmm. me. I mean, I've got to imagine Mary J. Blige is a style and hair icon to you because I, can't think of someone whose hair is so the, <laughs> the biggest in the world. Mary J. Blige probably has the most the most influence on my career wow. than anything else. I, you know, I've been in ateliers where I'm doing couture shows and I'm 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 doing the hair and I'm finished with the style. And I would say to myself, Mary, do an element of Mary in there somewhere. And it can be something as small as like a strand that I'm doing. Like yeah, it's like always, a <laughs> yeah. It'd be like it'll be like something <laughs> quaffed and done, and then I would just add like a, I call it like a little hood trick to it somewhere to kind of make it like a little bit more like me in that sense mm-hmm. of like you know understanding like that that kind of beauty. I think Mary J. Blige, especially during that era of her life, um, she's had such an impact, and I think that. For me to be in New York at that time, coming from Jamaica, which had such a strong culture and, and such a strong way of doing things, even though in Jamaica, like, um, you know, American music is appreciated a lot. And, and, you know, I was very well, I knew exactly what was going on in New York, even when I lived in Jamaica. But mm. that Mary J. Blige sound was literally the, co- the, the soundtrack of our lives in that moment. For me to be a child, and not going through what she's went through at that time and still feel that every time I hear that, it was it's it's such a it's such a moment of like I don't even know how to describe it. I think it's like it's 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 an emotional, cultural thing. I think that it's the sound of blackness in New York at that time. Mm. That's the only way I could describe it. Yeah. Um, and this just like, you know, 
listening to something that's inspirational and and to know her story later on in life and what she was going through when she sang that. It's so inspirational to me to still listen to this day. Like, you know, yeah. um, I work in an industry that's not always, you know, the most favorable thing to people like myself. And I think that I do have days when, you know, I second guess certain things and I listen to songs like that and it's just kind of like, no, actually, you know what? You, you gotta be all right. You have to keep people going and keep, and keep understanding that there's a bigger power yeah. than all of this. And, you know, it's definitely been an inspirational song for me, but also it's just like her, I just, you know, just, when I did her here was the one day that I was like crying about. Oh, oh my <laughs> God. Where did you do, who did you do her hair for? I did her hair for Garage Magazine. Yes, um, yes. An incredible with, cover. I believe it was it Renell Madrano, Gabriella Carifa Johnson and you. Yeah. 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 It's a great cover. Yeah. I want to talk to you about where you want to take her. You seem like someone who isn't held by limits. You really see this as a true storytelling vehicle. We've had conversations about this. You, you feel that the actual doing of her is one part of it, but it can be so much bigger and more expansive. And I guess I just want some parting words from you about where you see all of this going and, and, and your part to play in that? Well, what I've realized about hair is it's so much more than I think a lot of people tend to think about it in the sense of, you know, there's a lot of cultures that do hair to function, do hair to go to work, do hair to go to work, do hair to live in their societies. It's such a huge thing. It's a political thing. It's a cultural thing. It's a, it's a personal thing. It's, it's, it's so much. And I feel like the conversations about hair are can be very, very, very deep, very, very fast. So I think for me, understanding that textured hair and wavy hair, straight hair are all amazing, um, depending on, you know, the world that you want to live in. But particularly textured hair just feels like there's so much about it that's an enigma to the rest of the world, the culture around it. And I want to dive into that a bit more. And whether that is through exhibitions or books or dissecting in editorials and, you know, or like working on things that kind of jump into it. Like what, what's the reason behind it? There's certain codes, there's certain codes that you and I can be in a room and someone walks in with a certain hair and we can look at each other and be like, we know that hair, we know what's going on with her. We know, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel like the rest of the world who does not, who have not lived that world, who have not lived with that hair texture, is kind of like, huh? Where is that from? There's so much, there's so much about yeah. it that I want to dive into. And I feel like I kind of done it a little bit with my the exhibit that I did with Nadine yeah. appreciating. Talawa, right? In it was called Talawa. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, um, there's a project coming out later on this year that I've been working on um with St. Huron that I'm very, very happy about. St. Huron is Salon just platform, agency. yeah. I am so excited about what's happening with that because it kind of dives into it a bit more. But then outside of that, I'm realizing that there's such a deficiency in like the experience around this hair that we have on our head and and and, and just like we spend so much money on this hair and, and we're still just like not having an experience like everyone else and not be able to talk and share and have anecdotes and talk. So I'm thinking of like so many different things that I think that the future 
of hair can or should be about as it pertains to just understanding it on, on a different level outside of just doing it. The fact that there's still laws that we have to pass to wear your hair naturally in certain states, it's just, it's insane. So I'm, 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 that's, I think that's going to be the rest of my career trying to understand why and, and try to figure out how to make this better for people yeah. with this hair type. And, yeah. and, and, and it's insane to me that I've never seen any books or any exhibitions outside of the few that I love based on hair and how much power these follicles hold and the reason why we do what we do and the reason why we are who we are. A lot of it has to do with our hair sometimes. So yeah. I'm going to be diving into that a lot. Yeah. And I think... Mm-hmm. That's an amazing place to end. Juara, thank you so much for being a guest on Sounds and Style. I think hair and makeup is is so much a part of the reason we have style, the reason we appreciate style, the reason that we are who we are and how we put ourselves together. And you're a big part of moving that conversation forward. So thank you very much for being a part of the pod. And thank you so much for having me. You already know. I mean, guys, I'll take a date anytime. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Sounds of Style. Head on over to nts.live to hear a specially curated mix influenced by the conversation you just heard. Sounds of Style is an NTS podcast hosted by me, Lynette Nylander, produced by Connor Garney and Lizzie King. Follow, subscribe, rate and review if you like what you just heard And we'll be back next week with another episode of Sounds and Style.